This episode is brought to you by Avid Bank. As a former searcher and CEO myself, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to have a great relationship with your banking partner. Not only do they help you finance and close the transaction, but in many cases, the relationship that you establish with your senior lender will last you at least through to your exit, but in all likelihood will extend into future transactions as well. Avid Bank is one of the most experienced search fund lenders in North America, having funded over 40 separate transactions since 2014 for a total of over $300 million. Most importantly, the searchers that I know personally who have actually worked with them speak very highly of them as trusted partners. And that makes sense. Avid Bank is deeply familiar with the search fund model and as a result, completely understand the nuances of the fundraising process, dealing with sellers, communicating with your equity investors, LOI reviews, and everything else in between. Avid Bank is also offering a special promotion to listeners of In the Trenches. If you mention the promo code TRENCHES to them, they'll set you up with a business money market account that will feature a rate a full 1% higher than posted rates for a period of 12 months from account opening. The promotion runs from March 2nd to May 2nd of 2023 and is applicable to new customers only, but includes those looking to acquire a company as well as those who are currently running a company who may be considering a new banking partner. If you want to reach out to Avid Bank, I've provided the relevant email addresses in both the show notes and in today's episode description. Though search funds have historically acquired companies within countless different industries, software has been among the most popular and sought-after industries among searchers for many years now. And this makes sense, in part due to the overlap between the software business model and the characteristics that search funds typically seek out in their acquisition targets. Things like recurring revenue profiles, asset light operations, capital light growth opportunities, sticky products with high switching costs, and so on. For this reason, much has been written about software within the search fund ecosystem, and many software studies, similar to but almost certainly better than the one that I'm about to present to you, have been compiled and presented by my peers over recent years. A 2022 study conducted by Endurance Search Partners and Applied Equity is particularly good, as is a 2021 study conducted by TTCER Partners and Banyan Software. I'm hopeful that the study that I present to you here is complementary to the efforts of these and other investors who have already been so generous with their time, efforts, and insights. I chose to conduct my own survey for two primary reasons. First, to better understand the complexion of the typical software acquisition within the search fund ecosystem. And second, and most importantly, to see whether or not the complexion of the typical software acquisition has changed over time. Over the past few years, I've grown to suspect that the typical SaaS acquisition consummated after 2019 has changed quite materially from the typical SaaS acquisition consummated prior to 2019. More specifically, I've observed that many of the post-2019 acquisitions seem to resemble growth equity-like transactions more than they have traditional buyout transactions. This is something that I elaborated on in a lot of detail in another blog post called Evaluating Five Very Different Approaches to Acquiring a Software Company. Prior to conducting the study, whose results I'm about to go through, this opinion was based almost entirely on anecdotal information. But now that I have pressure tested this thesis to the best of my limited abilities, 
I feel reasonably safe in concluding that, yes, the profile of the typical SaaS acquisition within the search fund ecosystem has indeed changed, and in some cases quite a bit, over the past few years. The remainder of this audio blog will walk you through how and why I arrived at that conclusion. Okay, let's start by evaluating the data set. Statisticians the world over will be tremendously disappointed to learn that my observations are based on the responses of 41 CEOs who have acquired SaaS companies through the search fund model, though they will rightly argue that my sample size is too small to produce statistically significant results. I would suggest that at the very least, the results should provide both searchers and investors with food for thought. The year in which each target company was acquired was captured. We were able to achieve reasonably good diversity by vintage year, with 18 of the 41 transactions taking place in 2019 or earlier, and 23 of the 41 transactions taking place after 2019. For each of the variables that we will walk through throughout the rest of this audio blog, we present a summary of our survey responses, and where applicable, we'll discuss if and how certain variables have changed across these two cohorts. Again, these two cohorts are acquisitions that took place in 2019 or earlier, and acquisitions that took place after 2019. In section one, we will analyze several metrics at the time of closing. And in section two, we will analyze various post-closing considerations. Now, a quick note for those listening to this and not reading the blog post. For reasons that are probably obvious by now, this blog post is very heavy on graphs, numbers, and stats. So I will try my best to make this as useful as possible. But if the audio version doesn't quite tick that box for you, I'd certainly encourage you to check out the live blog post. Okay, so let's start section one and evaluate various purchase metrics. Where I want to start is by analyzing the ARR or annual recurring revenue multiple. So across all of the acquisitions, across the entire data set, searchers were most likely to acquire their SaaS companies for a multiple between three to four times ARR. That represented about 30% of total responses. The second most likely ARR multiple range was between two to three times ARR. That was about 24% of total responses. Okay, so let's compare the two cohorts. It was interesting to note that almost all of the three to four times acquisitions took place after 2019. Prior to 2019, deals were much more likely to trade in the two to three times range. Indeed, prior to 2019, about 56% of searchers acquired their business for a multiple of three times or lower. After 2019, only 30% of searchers paid three times or lower. How about the multiple of total revenue? Well, across all acquisitions, on a total revenue basis, and that includes all sources of revenue, both recurring and non-recurring in nature, the top of the bell curve occurred between two to three times revenue. Across the two cohorts, we see a similar dynamic playing out here as well. Prior to 2019, about 44% of searchers acquired their business for a total revenue multiple of two times or lower. After 2019, however, only 17% of searchers paid two times or lower. If those are the two revenue multiples, let's look at the EBITDA multiple. 
So across the entire data set, across all acquisitions, the most frequent response to our question of the EBITDA acquisition multiple was that it was not a meaningful number, which suggests that the multiple was so high that it did not convey any meaningful insights. However, when we compare the cohorts, we do see a reasonably large disparity between them. Prior to 2019, about 55% of transactions took place at an EBITDA multiple of eight times or less. After 2019, however, only 30% of transactions fit that description. What's more, after 2019, about 40% of all transactions took place at an EBITDA multiple that was classified as not being meaningful. That same figure for the pre-2019 cohort was only 11%. So when we combine all of these observations, where do we land? Well, from the three data points that we've presented above, we can infer that search funds have indeed been paying more fulsome valuations for SaaS companies since 2019, though it's at least worth noting that this multiple expansion is consistent with the broader market multiples. And as we'll see in more detail below, the profile of the average company acquired after 2019 is actually quite different from the profile of the average company purchased prior to 2019. So let's get into some of those metrics. And let's start with the EBITDA margin of the company being acquired. Across all acquisitions, so across the entire data set again, I was actually somewhat surprised to see that the top of the bell curve appeared between 10 and 30% EBITDA margins. About a quarter of the companies purchased were generating an EBITDA margin between 10 to 20%, and another quarter were generating EBITDA margins somewhere between 20 to 30%. This profitability profile is actually quite a bit higher than I would have initially suspected. If we compare the cohorts, the primary difference between them is that search funds after 2019 were much more likely to purchase companies that were either barely profitable or not profitable at all. In the 2019 or prior cohort, only 5% of targets reported EBITDA margins of 0% or less. After 2019, however, 22% of targets reported EBITDA margins of 0% or less. Next, let's look at the growth rate of ARR at purchase. And as always, we'll start with the entire data set. So across all of the acquisitions, target companies were most likely to be growing ARR at a rate of 10 to 20% annually. That represented about 30% of all responses, followed closely by 40% or more annual growth, which was 24% of all, of all responses. Now, if we compare the cohorts, after 2019, target companies appear to be growing much more rapidly. In the 2019 or prior cohort, only 27% of all companies purchased were growing ARR at 30% or more. After 2019, however, 43% of all companies we're growing ARR at 30% or more. So what can we conclude from this data? Well, after 2019, within the rule of 40 equation, which is the growth rate of revenue plus the EBITDA margin, more weight has seemingly been ascribed to growth than to profitability. Again, that is for the post-2019 cohort. We can also conclude that the increase in the growth rate of target companies may at least in part, explain the higher valuations that have been paid since 2019. Speaking of the rule of 40, let's talk about that. And again, the definition is EBITDA margin plus the percentage revenue growth rate. Well, across all acquisitions, 46% of companies acquired were 40% at a minimum on the rule of 40 scale. Uh, and that was by far the most frequent response. If we were to compare the two 
cohorts, 40% or more was indeed the most frequent answer across both cohorts, but companies purchased after 2019 were slightly more likely to be 40% or more on that rule of 40 scale. In their case, 52% of total companies purchased after 2019 were 40 or more on that scale. Those that were purchased prior to 2019 were only above 40 on the rule of 40 scale 39% of the time. As we saw above, however, this appears to be almost entirely attributable to the revenue component of the rule of 40 equation, not the profitability component. Let's look at the size of the EBITDA of the companies being acquired. Across the entire data set, both cohorts exhibited a very wide range of EBITDA values, with some target companies as small as zero to $200,000 in EBITDA and others as large as $2 million or more. If we compare the cohorts consistent with our findings above, it appears that a greater proportion of sub $1 million EBITDA businesses were purchased after 2019. In the 2019 or earlier cohort, only 39% of businesses had a million dollars of EBITDA or less. After 2019, however, 59% of businesses had a million dollars of EBITDA or less. Let's look at the dollar amount of ARR. Across the entire data set, the greatest number of companies were purchased while generating two to three million dollars in total ARR. Comparing the cohorts, it appears as if target companies have been getting larger since 2019. In the 2019 or prior cohort, only 39% of all companies purchased were generating $3 million or more of ARR at closing. After 2019, however, a full 70% of all companies were generating more than $3 million in ARR at closing. So what can we conclude from this? Well, we can conclude that the increase in the size of the target companies, as well as their higher growth rates, may, at least in part, explain the higher valuations that have been paid for these companies since 2019. Another thing I wanted to better understand was recurring revenue as a percentage of total revenue. So across the entire data set, having at least 60% of your total revenue coming from truly recurring sources appeared to be more or less table stakes. 61% of all companies could make this claim. When we compare the cohorts, we notice that in the 2019 or prior cohort, only 17% of all acquisitions generated at least 80% of their revenue from recurring sources. After 2019, however, a full 47% of acquisitions generated at least 80% of their revenue from recurring sources. Searchers therefore appear to be increasingly focused on buying businesses with a higher proportion of recurring revenue relative to total. Now, it's worth noting that this trend may also loosely coincide with the broader market's gradual shift from perpetual use pricing models to subscription-based pricing models, which of course tend to have higher percentages of recurring revenue. So the conclusion, well, alongside larger revenue bases and faster growth rates, this higher proportion of total revenue coming from recurring sources may, at least in part, explain the higher valuations that have been paid for SaaS businesses since 2019. Okay, let's look at gross margin now. Well, unlike many of the variables that we've presented thus far, the two cohorts actually appear to be more similar than different with respect to gross margin. In both cohorts, one-third of all companies acquired had a gross margin of at least 80%. In both cohorts, 70% of all companies acquired had a gross margin of at least 60%. 
When we compare the cohorts here, the major difference between them revolves around the percentage of companies purchased that were, quote, only, generating a gross margin between 40 to 60 percent. 33% of all purchases in 2019 or earlier fit this claim, but only 17% made this claim in the post-2019 cohort. It's pretty difficult to accurately attribute this to anything in particular, as there is more variability than most people might think with respect to how software companies even calculate gross margin, specifically within the microcap market. Okay, let's look at a very important metric, the gross logo retention rate. And first, let's define it. This would be loosely defined as, for every customer who was a recurring revenue customer last year, what percentage were still recurring revenue customers this year? Across the entire data set, gross logo retention rates above 90% appear to again be more or less table stakes. 71% of all companies surveyed boasted a gross logo retention rate above 90%. As I've said in the past, I believe gross logo retention rate to be among the most informative metrics for any software business. And in a hypothetical world where I could only see a single metric to evaluate the health of any given software business, gross logo retention might be my choice. So if we compare the cohorts, there does appear to be a difference in retention rates between the two cohorts. Prior to 2019, 89% of all companies acquired had a gross logo retention rate of at least 90%. After 2019, however, only 56% of all companies acquired had a gross logo retention rate of at least 90%. The other major way to measure retention is through something called net revenue retention. So let's define that first. This basically answers the question, what percentage of my recurring revenue dollars from last year are still recurring revenue dollars this year, including the dollar value of customer upsells and downgrades? So across the entire data set, net revenue retention rates of at least 95% again appear to be more or less table stakes. A full 88% of all companies acquired had a revenue retention rate of 95% or more. When we compare the cohorts, though they appear to be reasonably similar, there does appear to be a slight bias towards acquiring higher net revenue retention businesses after 2019. I say this because 35% of all companies acquired after 2019 boasted revenue retention rates of 105% or more, while only 17% of companies acquired in 2019 or earlier could say the same. Next, let's look at customer concentration. And for purposes of this survey, we define this as the percentage of total revenue represented by the company's largest single customer at the time of acquisition. So across the entire data set, target companies were most likely to have negligible levels of customer concentration with zero to 5% of total revenue coming from their largest single customer. About 29% of all companies fit this description. With that said, concentration isn't completely unheard of as the second most frequent response at 17% of all responses was that the company's largest customer accounted for 15 to 20% of total revenue. So when we compare the cohorts with respect to customer concentration, the data is somewhat mixed. On one hand, the pre-2019 targets were less likely to have mild concentration than post-2019 targets. However, they were also more likely to have meaningful concentration, which is defined as 35% of sales or more relative to their post-2019 peers. I recognize that's a lot of numbers and percentages to throw at you. So again, to the extent that you can, check out the graphs which are contained within the blog post.
This episode is brought to you by Symphony, a global software design and product development firm with presence in the United States, Latin America, and Europe. Almost every SaaS CEO with whom I'm familiar will likely agree that the technical due diligence process is perhaps the most important work stream for any prospective software CEO to get right. This is especially true for those like me who would classify themselves as non-technical. This is one of the reasons why I'm excited to partner with Symphony. Symphony not only performs technical due diligence engagements for search funds, private equity firms, and strategic acquirers, but they also work with companies to immediately begin executing on the problems and opportunities identified throughout the course of that process, as they do essentially everything related to product. This can include outsourcing your development entirely, augmenting your existing team, prototyping a new product, refreshing your UI, or professionalizing your QA operation, to name just a few. Symphony was co-founded by a Stanford GSB grad in 2007 and now has over 700 full-time development, product, and design resources across the globe, in addition to business and strategic resources from McKinsey, BCG, Google, and several private equity firms. For listeners of In the Trenches, Symphony is offering a full 15% off of any of their services, and that includes the technical due diligence engagements. Just go to the contact form on their website and tell them that you're a listener of the podcast. It's lastly worth noting that their team is fully staffed and ready to go. So if you have a technical due diligence or other product engagement that's time sensitive, it's definitely worth checking them out at symphony.is. That's symphony.is. Okay, now let's look at the percentage of the transaction that was funded with debt. Across the entire data set, transactions were most likely to be funded with a minimal amount of debt, defined as 10% or less of total capitalization. This represented approximately one-third of all responses and was largely consistent with my expectations. When we compare the cohorts, though, I was quite surprised to see that transactions that took place after 2019 were actually more likely to use more leverage than their pre-2019 counterparts. I actually would have expected the exact opposite. In the 2019 or earlier cohort, 50% of all transactions used 20% leverage or more. In the post-2019 cohort, however, 61% of acquisitions fit that same description. Given that the post-2019 cohort seems to be targeting higher growth, lower profitability businesses, I would have expected the post-2019 cohort to be considerably less leveraged than the pre-2019 cohort. Okay, now let's look at the total number of customers that the company had at the time of acquisition. Across the entire data set, companies were most likely to have at least 300 customers at the time of acquisition. This represented 37% of all responses. When we compare the cohorts, companies purchased after 2019 do indeed seem to be getting larger as measured by the size of their customer bases. And this is consistent with our earlier analysis, which suggested that post-2019 acquisitions were, on average, also generating more ARR than their pre-2019 counterparts. So in this case, in the 2019 or earlier cohort, only 33% of companies had 150 or more customers at the time of acquisition. For the post-2019 cohort, 52% of all companies fit that description. So the conclusion that we can extract from this is that, similar to what we concluded above, the higher valuations that have been paid since 2019 
may be at least in part attributable to the larger size of the company as measured by both ARR as well as number of customers under the assumption of course that a greater number of customers generally produces more ARR. It's also consistent with our observation that post-2019 acquisitions are less likely to have meaningful customer concentration relative to their pre-2019 counterparts. Okay, next let's look at LTV to CAC. So let's define this first. LTV stands for lifetime value and CAC or CAC stands for customer acquisition cost. So LTV to CAC basically asks the question, what is the lifetime value of an average customer expressed as a multiple of the cost to acquire that same average customer? Higher is better. So across all acquisitions, I was not particularly surprised to see that 63% of all respondents said that they either didn't know the company's LTV to CAC ratio or they couldn't measure it with any real degree of precision. Though LTV to CAC is indeed generally considered to be a SAS 101 type of metric, accurately measuring it in small privately held companies with low information hygiene is often much more difficult than most might suspect. So if we compare the cohorts, though I don't know was indeed the most frequent answer within both of them, for those companies where we did know LTV to CAC, the post-2019 cohort did seem to demonstrate better unit economics relative to the pre-2019 cohort. 35% of all post-2019 companies had LTV to CAC ratios of five times or more, while only 11% of pre-2019 acquisitions could make the same claim. Again, from this, we can conclude, or at least infer, that more favorable unit economics may have also played a material role in the higher valuations that we've seen since 2019. Okay, next, let's look at the cash that was funded to the balance sheet at closing beyond ordinary course, day-to-day -day working capital considerations. So across the entire data set, by far the most frequent response at 34% of total responses was the following. Beyond day-to-day -day working capital requirements, we funded an additional $900,000 or more to the balance sheet as part of closing. The frequency with which this response was provided was somewhat surprising to me as the majority of search fund acquisitions outside of software typically require only a modest amount of cash to be funded to the balance sheet at close beyond day-to-day -day working capital requirements. If we compare the cohorts, by now it probably shouldn't be surprising to you to hear that transactions consummated after 2019 were much more likely to require a material amount of cash to be funded to the balance sheet relative to those consummated prior to 2019. About 39% of all post-2019 deals funded 900k or more to the balance sheet, while only 28% of pre-2019 deals did the same. 39% of all pre-2019 deals actually funded nothing to the balance sheet beyond day-to-day -day working capital requirements, while only 22% of post-2019 deals could make the same claim. Okay, so that's the end of section one. In section two, we're gonna evaluate several post-close considerations. And where I wanted to start is something that I struggled with quite a bit, which is the state of the product, code base, and technical debt. So the idea in even asking this question is as follows. Anecdotally, I've observed that many new SaaS CEOs comment on how the product that they inherited from their predecessors is in considerably worse shape than they had originally suspected. I wanted to test to see whether this was indeed true and whether it differed materially between the two cohorts. So 
if we compare the cohorts, for those companies purchased in the 2019 or earlier segment, a full 72% of CEOs reported that the state of the product, code base, and technical debt was in worse shape than they had suspected. However, only 30% of the post-2019 CEOs shared that same sentiment. Indeed, in the post-2019 cohort, CEOs were actually much more likely to be reasonably satisfied with the state of their products, with 70% of respondents saying that the product was about the same as I had thought or better than I had thought. So there was a big difference between the two cohorts. So though the magnitude of the delta between the two cohorts was actually higher than I would have thought, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see that the post-2019 targets tended to have better quality products and code bases than their pre-2019 counterparts. This could be due to a combination of A, better pre-purchase due diligence performed by more experienced third-party advisors, B, fewer legacy on-premise businesses with significant technical debt available for sale, and or C, the propensity of software companies to update their tech stacks periodically over time, sometimes in a very meaningful way. Next thing I wanted to look at was what direction have EBITDA margins gone since purchase? So across all acquisitions, the entire data set, 63% of all companies saw their EBITDA margins decline post-acquisition, while only 15% reported them as increasing. So if we compare the cohorts here, based on our state of the product observations that we just walked through, we shouldn't really be surprised to see that pre-2019 companies were more likely to see their margins decline post-purchase than were their post-2019 peers. This is probably because they had to put a whole bunch of money into fixing all of that technical debt that they inherited. In the pre-2019 cohort, only 28% of companies saw their margins stay flat or increase post-closing. However, in the post-2019 cohort, 43% of companies saw their margins either stay flat or increase. So what can we conclude from this? Well, I've long suspected that search funds don't model in enough margin compression post-close in their base cases. Margin contraction in the early years can be common and is often attributable to some combination of A, product-led investments, often of a defensive sort, B, sales and marketing investments, C, historical underinvestment in tools and people and processes by the previous ownership regime, and or D, replacing the work that had previously been done by the selling shareholder that can often necessitate two to four incremental hires as the new incoming owner doesn't have the decades of knowledge and experience that their predecessors often do. As a follow-up to that question, I wanted to better understand where has the bulk of that operating expense actually been spent? So for those companies who did see margins decline post-purchase, again, I wanted to understand where was all that money going? So across all acquisitions, two responses pre presented themselves with equal frequency. One is we spent most of it on product, which includes engineers, QA, infrastructure, product management, and et cetera. And tied for the lead was sales and marketing. Both of them individually accounted for 36% of all responses. So when we compare the cohorts, again, based on our analysis thus far, we shouldn't really be surprised to see that the pre-2019 acquisitions were more likely to direct their OPEX to fixing product-related problems than their post-2019 counterparts. In the 2019 or earlier cohort, 44% of CEOs said that their margin declines were mostly attributable to product considerations. In the post-2019 cohort, however, only 29% of CEOs reported something similar. 
Next, I wanted to better understand the rate of current revenue growth to the rate at which the company was growing revenue at the time of purchase. Now, the idea in asking this question is because of the importance of revenue growth to the typical SaaS investment thesis, I wanted to better understand how the growth of companies now under their new leadership compared to the rate of growth at the time of purchase under the previous leadership group. Now, we actually don't bother comparing the cohorts here as the results appear to be very similar across both. 55% of pre-2019 purchases recorded a higher LTM growth rate or last 12 months than the company was producing at the time of purchase. And about 52% of all post-2019 companies reported the same, so we'll call it roughly equal. So on average, it does seem reasonable to infer that growth rates now tend to be higher than growth rates at the time of purchase. And finally, where I wanted to conclude was to summarize both the most and the least important components of equity value creation. So again, the idea here is that although growing the value of a company is an incredibly complex and multivariable exercise, at the risk of oversimplifying, I wanted to better understand the primary components of each CEO's plan to create equity value, ranked from most important to least important. Now, across the entire data set, revenue growth was by far the most important value creation lever, with 80% of all respondents classifying it as the most important component of their value creation plan. Similarly, across both cohorts, leverage was classified as the least important component to the value creation plan. Based on all of our results thus far, this is quite unsurprising. If we compare the cohorts, unsurprisingly, the post-2019 acquisitions do seem to have a bit more of a growth orientation relative to their pre-2019 peers. 87% of all post-2019 companies ranked revenue growth as their most important consideration, while only 72% of pre-2019 companies made the same claim. So revenue growth was clearly important to both cohorts, but slightly more important after 2019. Okay, guys, that is it. I apologize for throwing so many numbers and percentages at you, but that's about the best that I could do to make this digestible in an audio format. Again, if you're interested in digging into the data, please check out the blog post, which you might find easier to find, particularly because we present graphs that show where the two cohorts differed most materially. I hope this was helpful to you. We'll see if we do this again next year. But in any case, thank you for listening.